It's time to make the dough rise, the financial podcast with Brian Doe. Hey, hey, we're going to make the dough rise. Once again, Walter Storholt here alongside Brian Doe, certified financial planner at Livingworth Wealth Advisors, serving the Lake Country and beyond, based in Greensboro, Georgia, but welcoming listeners from anywhere and everywhere. Uh, you can find out more information about Brian and the team online at livingworth.com. And I'm looking forward to today's episode. We've got some follow-up questions, a lot of interest still in I-bonds, and we're talking IRA beneficiaries as well. Uh, may seem like obscure topics. Topics, Brian, but I know you're getting lots of questions about these, and I hope you are doing well, my friend. What's going on in your world? Oh, we have started back to school, man. We're trying to go from it's, it's kind of like having jet lag because everybody got used to like sleeping till 10, 11, 12 o'clock, like, like teenagers do. Not me, but but the girls. And so now we've had to heart make a hard, bright turn and, and make it uh, what six or six thirty wake ups. So I, I figure it's kind of like uh, traveling to Europe. We just got a couple days to adjust here. Just just get on a little different schedule, a little bit of, uh, you know, trying to pick a new direction for the schedule, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And they're all very excited to be back. It's the first week is kind of novel and fun, but I'm sure next week it'll be back to the grind. Yeah. Always is that way, isn't it? Uh, well, tell us a little bit about all these questions you've been getting from listeners and clients on I-bonds and beneficiary questions. Why all this interest lately? Yeah, sure. Well, as you remember, we actually talked about I-bonds in a, a previous episode. And you know, my basic feeling was, and, and just to recap the rules, I-bonds are currently paying 9.6%. So with crushing inflation, you do get this nice yield on I-bonds that's it's guaranteed. They're very safe. It's with the U.S. Treasury. So a lot of a, a appeal to it, but you can only put in $10,000 per calendar year. Now, a, a couple could each do $10,000. So uh, a husband and wife could get $20,000 in there. And if for some reason you have a revocable trust titling set up for some of your accounts and um, have the documentation for that, you could actually open up a third account in the, the revocable trust. So it, with the right circumstances, a couple could get twenty dollars or $30,000 in there. Again, it just wasn't a huge enough number. And if inflation subsides, and those I bond rates go down. You're, you're not going to. I don't think you're going to be looking at these phenomenal returns on them for for particularly long. But I don't know if it's in the air, if it's in the paper, if it's on Money Magazine, if it's on CNBC. Everybody keeps coming to me with I bond questions. Now, if everybody listened to the podcast, they'd already have all the answers. So maybe that's a, you know, <laughs> a campaign we should we should, we should start on. But. I was doing some research. I was poking around the Treasury Direct website. And this that's where you get your I-bonds. You go to treasurydirect.gov and you have to set up your, your own account and get the money moved over there. But that, that's where you do it. Well, they had a frequently asked questions section. And I noticed it said something about E and double E bonds. Well, I do have several people that happen to have old E bonds, double E bonds, some even matured that they're they're either earning very minimal or no interest on, but they're delaying cashing them in because you know they're secure, they're safe, it's a good emergency type fund. While they were earning zero on cash in other places, it, it didn't really seem to hurt to leave them there. But if you redeem them, you do have to pay tax on all the all the interest that you've earned. So that's that's my first caveat. Uh, word of caution to anybody doing this, but here's the kicker. 
the E's and double E's can be redeemed and you can use the proceeds to buy I-bonds. So now, I don't know, maybe if you have 10, 20, 30, $40,000, $50,000 that have have been in E-bonds for a long, long time, they're nearing their maturity or they have matured, this may be a really good opportunity to cash those out, pay the tax bill, and then move them into the I-bonds. So now you could do your $10,000 each, 30 if you have a trust, and the balance of your E's and double E's. It's not going to apply to everyone, but I just thought, hey, that was kind of a neat opportunity if you had the right circumstances and the right uh, positions in these, in these older uh, E-bonds. E Move them to the I-bonds. Collect your 9.6 for, for a year. Maybe inflation comes down to 7 and to 5. That's still a far better return. So you, could, you may be able to go a few years and earn multiple years worth of return on what you would get from the E's and double E's. So just, just throwing it out there. And um, again, be, because of in, inflation sticking around longer, and if you started now, you know, let's, let's say it's August, as we're recording this, you could put in 10,000 per spouse now if you could convert any E and double E bonds. And then come January, you could do another 10,000 for each spouse, another 10 for each trust. So over the next five or six months, you, you could potentially get, you know, 60, 80, $100,000 uh, put into something like that. And that that's more of the solution that that my clients are looking for. That's really helpful. And I think that, um, you know, I think it's great that there's a little bit of this workaround. So if 10K didn't kind of move the needle for somebody originally, you know, if they've got these E and double E bonds now in any significant way, well, that might move the needle if we bump up that amount to make it worth kind of experiencing this, uh, this benefit and growth opportunity. Yeah. And it's good enough benefit that if you had to pay some taxes on it and whatnot, uh, you're, you're going to pick up a, a, and recover a, a fair amount with these rates that we're getting on eyes right now. Mm, that's really helpful as well. All right. So uh, that pretty much all the questions you're getting about I-bonds. What about the uh, IRA beneficiary type questions you've been fielding? Yeah. So the so, so let me take you back and just provide a brief history of RMD calculations. And during the 90s, as that first batch of people really started taking required minimum distributions, you know, they were hitting the age of 70 and a half, there were four different methodologies that that you could choose from once you chose one of them you were pretty well locked in you couldn't change it or speed it up or slow it down and it was massively complex it was very difficult to decide which strategy was going to be right for you uh, was going to be right for the beneficiaries and, and all that so they knew they needed to do something and uh, i want to think i want to say it was like the maybe as early as the, either the late 80s or early 90s, they proposed new rules for IRA distributions. And in Washington's efficient and productive manner, by 2002, they actually passed these proposed rule changes. So it took about 10 years to change these. But they made it far more simple to calculate your required minimum distribution. They went to one table and they presumed that you had a 10-year younger spouse, and they calculated the joint life expectancy. Didn't matter if your spouse was older, didn't matter if your spouse was, or if you didn't have a spouse. It, it would matter if your spouse was more than 10 years younger, but that, I, I won't get off on that. It, it doesn't affect most people. But there was one table, and so they made it really easy 
to calculate your required minimum distribution. It actually dramatically reduced the required minimum distribution. So everybody's like, hey, this is great. It's easier to calculate and I have to take less out. And, and that sounded like a win. And the thing I caution everyone about when Washington gives you what seems like a win for you, there's probably something in that for them. And in this case, it made the required minimum distribution rules enforceable. Okay, they were so complex previously, they actually couldn't have a you know, streamlined way to go in and figure out if people were actually following the rules. So a lot of people were doing it wrong and they weren't, they weren't catching it, they, weren't, they were missing tax revenue. And so now with this new simplified calculation, it became very enforceable and they put in a 50% penalty if you got it wrong. So now the, the incentive now to get it right on your part was a lot higher. Your custodians and, and people who held your retirement accounts, they could go off this one table and they could tell you what your required minimum distribution was going to be. So, so greatly simplified that we went from this complex Byzantine uh, system to a streamlined, simplified, but in, enforceable methodology, which was great. And that's what we planned on for the last 20 years. You know, we, we really thought, hey, our, our, we'll take our required minimum distributions in our 70s, uh, short of some other opportunities or need. And then this stretch IRA, they made it so that, uh, again, the, the, the calculation for a non-spouse beneficiary was really straightforward. You took age 85, subtracted your actual age, okay, so I'm 55, if I inherited an IRA on the old rules, I would have 30 years to stretch out the distributions and withdrawals from that IRA, right? Well, that doesn't sound too bad. If you had a significant balance there, you know, even if you had to take distributions each year and you were in high income years, it wasn't a big enough amount that it, you really felt like you were getting penalized or kicked it up into a dramatically higher tax bracket. So. This is what I'm seeing all the changes on now as people are having inherited IRAs. They're talking about leaving IRAs to people. Remember, we did the uh, podcast on the SECURE Act, and they, they came along and they moved the distribution for non-spouses to a 10-year time period. Okay, so quietly, they, they made that change. But then on the front end, they said, oh, hey, we're going to give you till age 72 to take your required minimum distributions. So most people, not really, not really fully comprehending how IRA distributions are calculated and definitely not really understanding how IRA calculations for non-spouse beneficiaries were determined, it didn't seem like that big of a deal. But they basically condensed, in the case I gave you earlier, if I had 30 years to withdraw an IRA, I now had 10 years. Well, maybe I don't want a 10th of, of an IRA distributed in one particular year. If you had a million dollar IRA, all of a sudden now you have to take out $100,000 per year to get that drawn down by 10 years. All right, but they did one good thing for us. And they said, well, you don't have to take any particular amount in any one year. You just have to have it depleted by 10 years. Okay, so under that methodology, you could 
maybe you had a hot, couple of high income years. And so you would not withdraw from the IRA. And then if you retired or had some lower income years, you would use that as the opportunity to, to draw down that IRA. And so that's, that's where we thought we were uh, as far as our understanding. And I would say the IRS validated that uh, to some degree. And so everybody has been either not taking distributions or trying to strategically determine when uh, to take the distribution based on their, on their income. So again, where this goes back to the IRA owners, if you're thinking about naming a beneficiary, well, what income situation are they going to be in when they have to do these withdrawals? Is it, does it make more sense for you to convert to Roth IRAs? You know, now that the math for your beneficiaries may, may change the calculation. So anyway, th that, that's a bit of a problem as far as accelerating the distributions for your, for your non-spouses. But the upshot to that is if you leave a Roth IRA, they can leave the balance in there for 10 years and let that grow and compound and then take it all out in 10 years. So are you with me so far, Walter? This yeah, is I'm, I'm tracking with you. captivating stuff, huh? Well, I know it's a lot of, it's a lot of changes, but it's really important because a lot of, this is a lot of money that can potentially be passing to somebody. And then with these different percentages, I mean, we're not talking about, okay, you had 30 years, now you have 25. I mean, that was a big change when it went down to 10. Yeah. It, and it's a, it's a huge difference. And now here's the, the one thing that they're talking about doing, and this, this may not actually pass. So I'm, this is kind of a forward uh, speculation. But they used to have a rule that if you inherited an IRA before somebody's required begin date, which would be 72, the age that you have to start taking required minimum distributions, there was one set of rules. And then if you inherited the IRA after the required begin date, they're, well, they're bringing that back. They're, they're, they're basically wanting to say, well, if a non-spouse uh, inherits an IRA and they were in distribution mode, all right, so they were 72 or older. Well, now that beneficiary needs to start taking an annual distribution. But those who inherited an IRA that was from a person who was not taking required minimum distributions, they can, they can wait the 10 years. All right, now if this is all starting to sound like a Rubik's Cube of uh, a Hall of Mirrors type of, of calculation, we're going back to the 1990s when, when we had this complex, ridiculous set of rules. And so whether you inherited an IRA in 2019 or 2020, you have two different calculation tables. If you were a spouse or a non-spouse, you've got different calculations. If the person you were inheriting it from was taking required minimum distributions, we may be looking at two different tables, uh, depending on that situation. If you think the one, the, ind the, the individual is largely responsible for this calculation. Okay, The standard table that I talked about earlier, well, that was easy to apply. Like you could just look at your date of birth and I could tell you what your, and your, your IRA balance at the end of the year and I could tell you what your required distribution is. Now, where you've got all these different, you know, it's like decision trees. You know, did you get the IRA in 2017 or did you get it in you know, 2021? Totally different. Was the person in required distributions or, or not? That could be a different calculation. So now you're going to be responsible for making the calculation because your, your custodian can't do it anymore. They don't, they don't know what all the parameters are and you know, when, when you got it and you know, what, what age the person you inherited it from was. 
and they keep changing these rules. So, so the, the calculation will fall on you. And if you get it wrong, guess what? That 50% penalty that they invented uh, back in 2002, that's still lurking out there. So, so very, very important to, to get this calculation right. I, I say all of that just so people can get, kind of get an idea of the, the complexity of this. And I'm not thinking that you will walk away from listening to this and, oh, I know how to calculate my required minimum distribution now. The, the point is you want to make sure you get the calculation done right, probably set up a little table or distribution and keep, keep a good record for yourself. Uh, because if, if you get it wrong, there is a, a 50% penalty. And it's helpful to understand the consequences. Wow. Uh, I know that that makes people probably a bit uh, nervous to make the wrong step or the wrong move here. Uh, by the way, Brian, you mentioned uh, Secure Act. We did that episode, Secure Act 2.0, a sneak peek and looking at some of those proposed changes and that sort of thing as well, pretty recently back in June. So if people want to go check that episode out, that was number 73. So look for it on your mm-hmm. Uh, podcasting app and just go back a couple of episodes to number 73 and you'll see secure act 2.0 a sneak peek where we dive a little bit more deeply into some of those additional proposed changes as well Uh, what about uh, beneficiaries there's some some other moving parts to kind of understand here with these changes right yeah so if you are in a position where you're you're needing to name beneficiaries for your ira seps Simples, 403Bs, 401Ks, all of these distribution rules apply. And I would say if you have money in 401Ks, be careful. Your employer may have a different and more aggressive distribution strategy for your beneficiaries, even than the IRS. Most of those accounts were set up as employee benefits and not uh, non-spouse beneficiary plans. And there's a cost to running them so that they don't necessarily want your kids and your grandkids hanging out on their their retirement plan, costing them for a long time. So, so a lot of 401ks will have shorter distribution schedules. But if you're naming somebody, there's two categories. There's eligible beneficiaries and designated beneficiaries. An eligible beneficiary are going to get the most advantageous calculations. They're, they're going to get the um, longer stretch time periods or, or the original rules. And so that would be a spouse. A minor child, they're actually going to get to stretch it out over a longer time period. But once they turn 18, then I think it's going to revert to a 10-year time period for them. There's also problems with naming a minor child as the beneficiary because you may end up with the probate court overseeing what they can invest in. So there, there may be some opportunities to, to set up a trust here for that, that situation if you have a large balance that you want to leave to a minor child. Disabled persons, uh, chronically ill uh, people... And people who are not more than 10 years younger than the original IRA holder, those categories all have much longer and, and more the life expectancy type calculations. So again, if you're just naming your spouse, they can, they can keep your schedule. They can roll it to their own IRA and, and switch to their schedule. Uh, no, no problem there for the, the spouse. Starting to name other uh, people with, that fit in some of these categories can come with some some complexity, but you know, it should be discussed if they if they fit in these categories. How's that distribution schedule going to look for them? And then finally, the the designated beneficiaries are just non spouses, your adult children, grandchildren, all the standard things that would um, uh, impact or not qualify them, I guess, for the longer distribution schedules. They're going to get the ten year. They may have to take an annual distribution depending on what they do with the uh, 
required begin date calculation. And uh, it's pretty straightforward, but it, it can mess up their income plan, their tax plan. If you're the, the recipient of an IRA, uh, you, you got to be a lot more careful about this, throwing a, a little bit of a tax bomb into your, into your portfolio. A lot of moving parts to consider there, Brian. So to kind of peel back the, uh, the, the onion a little bit and, and recap all of this. I mean, what are the, the key questions somebody could, should kind of walk away from today's episode needing to ask and get answers to, to, uh, drill down a little bit closer into figuring out, uh, some of these moving parts that fit their particular situation? Yeah. Well, I think based on that list that we just went through the, the eligible versus designated categories. Who are your beneficiaries? What are their ages? What are their circumstances? You know, is there a good planning opportunity to leave an IRA to one child and a Roth to another? There, there's, there's some clever things that you could do there. And then are you somebody's beneficiary? Is, is there an inherited IRA coming your way? Could be from a sibling or a, a, a parent or an aunt or uncle that you, you may or may not even know that you're somebody's beneficiary. And, and if so, you know, the getting money, uh, having money left to you is never really a bad thing, but, uh, you know, it, it can cause some, some tax issues. And, uh, you know, if you're retired, it could bump up your Medicare supplement premiums. There's, there's a lot of things that could happen here. So you should know what what's coming your way. And then finally, if you're leaving money to charities, use your IRA, do not leave non IRA assets to charity. Those tend to get a step up in cost basis and the charity will get all of the money you leave them from the IRA with no tax bill. So if you want, I want to leave X amount or X percentage to the church or some organization that you like, your alma mater, do it in percentage terms. So, so you, you can name multiple beneficiaries. You don't have to leave your entire IRA 401k to the charity. You could say 10% or yeah, and then leave each of the kids 45% or something like that. If you've got two children, don't name the beneficiary in dollar amounts. A lot of people say, well, I'm going to leave 10,000 here, 10,000 there, 50,000 to this uh, organization. If you do it in dollar terms, you will ruin the uh, stretch capabilities for all of your other human beneficiaries. You have to kind of watch the math. If your account grows, you know, maybe you've left 5% or 3% or 10% for, for different organizations, you can always update that and tweak that, that dollar amount so that they get the, roughly the dollar amount that you intended. But like I said, that is the most tax efficient way to leave money uh, to, to charities. So know whether it's people or, or organizations and uh, yeah, just plan accordingly. Those are some important tips and elements, no doubt about it. And so, yeah, a lot of questions coming into the office recently about these I-bonds and these IRA beneficiaries. Some of that stuff can be complex, but all of it is part of the overall planning process and uh, puts you in the right direction for preparing for your financial future. And you know what? If it's something that you're struggling to do, if you're struggling to prioritize your financial goals or you need a plan for where, how to save, how to handle some of these moving parts like uh, IRA beneficiaries and designations and RMDs and those kinds of things. It's a small piece of the pie, a small slice, if you will. 
but it is an important slice, and then it'll lead you to solving some of the other problems that exist in your portfolio and your plan. So if you want help of all of that, plus investment management, and you want to work with somebody who's got more than 20 years of experience through the ups and the downs and the sideways directions of the market, uh, look no further than working with Brian Doe and uh, here on Make the Doe Rise and the team at Living Worth Wealth Advisors. Uh, Brian is a certified financial planner. He's got that certification as a standard of excellence in the financial planning world. Uh, CFP professionals, they meet rigorous education, training, and ethical standards and are committed to serving clients' best interests today to prepare you for a more secure tomorrow. So here's what I would recommend you do if you want to work with somebody like Brian and you want to put together the kind of planning that we've been talking about on today's episode. Uh, Call. Get a free 15-minute complimentary call with Brian by dialing 706-451-9800. See if we can get you some clarity around your financial goals and help you prepare for the future. Or you can go to livingworth.com and click the book a call button. That's your other option. Go to livingworth.com and click book a call. And uh, you'll be in good shape if you do that because you'll be well on your way to having a good plan for RMDs and all these other great things that we talked about on today's show, Brian. Really appreciate your help today. Any uh, parting thoughts for the listeners today? No, I think uh, just be mindful of that these things are out there and and maybe sit down with somebody that knows what they're doing to flow chart it out and to do some calculations. And I think you can avoid the, uh, the worst tax traps that are out there. And we definitely want to avoid those kinds of things. So there you have it. And uh, we look forward to another great topic on the agenda for our next episode of Make the Dough Rise. Uh, for Brian Doe, I'm Walter Storholt, wishing you a happy day. And we will talk to you again on the next episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Make the Dough Rise is brought to you by Living Worth Wealth Advisors, with a central office in Greensboro, Georgia, but serving the Lake Country and beyond. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all your favorite podcasting apps. Subscribe today and never miss an episode. Just search for Make the Dough Rise with Brian Doe. You can also visit MakeTheDoughRise.com to listen to recent episodes. If you'd like to contact the show or schedule a complimentary financial review with Brian and the team, just go to MakeTheDoughRise.com and get in touch through the website or call 706-451-9800. Thanks for listening to Make the Dough Rise. Investment advisory services offered through Main Street Financial Solutions, LLC. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed.